Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to Luke's Gospel. This morning we find ourselves in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, and we want to look together at verses 1 to 24. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. Now, uh, we have a fairly significant event coming up in our family soon. Uh, many of you know Gabrielle is getting married on, on October 8th. She's getting married on a Sunday. And so two weeks from uh, today, uh, Andrew Leitner will be with us uh, from Harvest. Andrew uh, will, be, will be here to fill the pulpit while we are in uh, Chattanooga, and I'm doing my best not to cry. Uh, that that is our plan for that day. So we look forward to that, and uh, I hope I know Andrew is looking forward to being with uh, with y'all. Luke chapter ten, beginning in verse one. After this, the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them on ahead, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remaining in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in, lat in sackcloth and ashes." But it will be more bearable in the judgment for you, Tyre and Sidon, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now bless these moments we ask. We pray that you would do so for your grace, for your glory, and for the betterment of your people. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we saw that the cost of being a follower of Jesus Christ is great. Our Lord lovingly lets three aspiring disciples know exactly what following him is going to entail, exactly what it's going to cost them. It's not an easy life. Following Jesus requires single-hearted devotion to him. Well, our text for this morning seems to be more of the same. Jesus sends his followers out with a difficult series of stipulations. He commissions them to proclaim a message that will probably be misunderstood by many and will lead some to think that they're simply a bunch of political rabble-rousers. Really, the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of Caesar has its boot on our neck. Huh. Okay. So, wouldn't we understand, however, what's really going on? What we see is Dr. Luke skillfully balancing out his picture of what it means to be Jesus' disciple. Yes, it is a life of difficult challenges, but it's also a life of joy and privilege. So, let me begin this morning with a question. Would joy be a defining characteristic of your walk with Jesus? Would people define you not as being happy? Happy people are unsettling. Kind of ridiculous. No, I don't mean happy. Happiness is generally dependent upon your circumstances. Uh, We were all much happier at the end of the Nebraska game than we were going in at halftime. Joy, however, is something entirely different. Would joy be a defining characteristic of your walk with Jesus. I know that as Americans, we all feel a certain amount of entitlement, but having some sense of the privilege of being a Jesus follower, well, again, that's something altogether different. So what about you? Do you have some sense of the joy and the privilege that is yours as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, our big idea for this morning tells you that there should be great joy and privilege and being a follower of Jesus. And so let's figure out why that is. What is it that Dr. Luke is telling us that would lead us to understand the joy and privilege that's ours in being called disciples of Jesus Christ? First, there's the privilege of being a sent one. There's the privilege of being a sent one. In verses 1 to 12, we see Jesus taking his disciples plus 72 others. And the word that Luke uses is specific. It is intentional. He appointed them. He didn't just say, hey, who has a couple days to spare and thinks this would be a nice trip? Who's got some PTO at their job and they can come alongside and maybe wants to get a feel if this is something they would want to be about? 
No, he intentionally appoints them and he sends them two by two. And note, he doesn't just say, well, go wherever you would like to go. But verse one tells us he sent them where he himself was about to go. In other words, this is a kind of prep team. This is an advance force. These are people who are going to let the inhabitants of these towns and cities know that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is on his way. And he assures them that as they are sent, they will be successful. Look at verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Hey guys, listen, the, the issue here is not that people aren't going to hear you. The issue is that there aren't enough of you. So one of the things that we know as being sent ones is that the Lord himself is going to bless the work that we are about. The harvest is plentiful. That's a statement of fact. Notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, you got to make sure we have a plentiful harvest. Hey, you've got to do this and this and this and this. No, Jesus tells them, as a matter of fact, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord, not that the harvest would be plentiful, but pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And you're saying, okay, well, if the harvest is plentiful, who wouldn't want to sign up for that job? Well, let's keep reading. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Hey, the harvest is plentiful. We just need laborers. It's going to be successful. Oh, yeah. But I'm sending you out as lambs amidst the wolves. In other words, Jesus is reminding them that the work to which he is calling them, the work to which he is sending them, is one that is going to be Christ-shaped. Remember, Jesus describes himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Passover Lamb. He is the one who is himself going to be slaughtered. And so if the Lord Jesus faced suffering, if the Lord Jesus executed that which the Father sent him to do and suffered doing it, what makes those whom the Lord has appointed and sent out think that their work would somehow be different? Well, it goes on. There's even more. The privilege of being a sent one means that you're going to go much like the prophets of old did. You're not going to have a money bag. You're not going to have a knapsack. You're not going to have sandals. And you're going to greet no one on the road. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to walk down the road with your head down and be antisocial and be uh, and all the introverts in the house said amen. But what it means is you're not going to greet people because typically in the ancient Near East, if you saw, if you were headed to a, a particular city and you met a group of travelers and they were from that town and they looked wealthy and prosperous, guess what you would do? you would greet them. Why would you greet them? Now remember, there are no hotels. You would greet them in hopes that they would invite you. Hospitality was a huge part of ancient Near Eastern culture. But 
if you saw the guy with a 270,000 mile Toyota minivan coming down the road, you're probably not going to greet him. You're going to greet the guy driving the Lamborghini, but not the guy driving the late model minivan. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is not how this works. You go where I send you. And as soon as you get there, you stay, whichever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if the peace returns to you, then stay there. In other words, he wants them to understand that part of the privilege of being a sent one means that they're there for the harvest, not for their own good, not for their own benefit. They cannot go someplace and say, hey, uh, this is a nice place, but you know, I think I, could, I think I can do a little better. So let's go into town, let's do what we can, and if we find a nicer place to stay, if we find a place that has better food, we can do that. But no, Jesus wants them to understand. Verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is kingdom work. And the kingdom of God is not about haves and have-nots. It's not about the distinctions between Jew and Gentile. No, the kingdom of God is being announced and proclaimed. And they need to understand that if they don't receive this message, they're not receiving the kingdom itself. And they need to know that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, you might be sitting here this morning thinking, okay, well, pastor, that's, that's great for the 72, and that's great for the 12 apostles. But we need to understand that according to Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, we're all appointed by the Lord to make disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us spend our week doing that. It doesn't mean that all of us are financially supported in this work. But it does mean that we all have a call to make Jesus followers. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes it clear as he gets to the pastoral epistles that the work of pastors and elders is not to do all the ministry so then people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, Paul makes it clear, do you recall? He says, no, I, the job of pastors and elders is to equip you for what? For ministry. So that you can fulfill the task to which the Lord has called you. So the job of the pastor, the job of an elder, is not to do all of the ministry. The job of pastors and elders is to shepherd and teach and care so that you yourself feel equipped and qualified because you are a sent one. You have been appointed by God to make disciples in your own setting and in your own context, most notably in your own family. Second, there's the privilege of meaningful work. There's the privilege of meaningful work. Now, let's be clear. All work is meaningful. I don't care if you're digging ditches. That is meaningful 
work. Whatever your vocation, know that it's God himself who created work. And we need to understand that there aren't two tiers of work, right? Somehow there's secular work and there's holy work. And holy work is better because, you know, somehow God likes it more. That's not true. In fact, one of the things that the Protestant Reformation reclaimed was it reclaimed the value of work. Uh, Luther famously had a conversation with a shoemaker. The man said, he came to faith in Jesus and he came to Martin Luther and he said, hey, I really want to serve the Lord. I really want to do something that's going to matter. And, and Luther said, well, what did you do before you were saved? Well, I'm a shoemaker. Are you a good shoemaker? Yes, I'm one of the best shoemakers in, in my entire region. Do you charge a fair price for your, for your wares? Yes, absolutely. Are you honest in your dealing? Yes. And Luther said to him, well, if you want to serve the Lord, Keep doing what you're doing. There's no great distinction between work that is somehow holy or sacred and work that is secular. God created all kinds of work. But let's understand that according to verse 16, this is about being rightly related to the creator of all things. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. One of the stunning things we've been seeing in the book of Jeremiah is that as Jeremiah goes and he preaches faithfully and consistently and he prays for and he pleads with Jerusalem and the people of Judah and they continue to not hear him and not hear him and not hear him. The Lord makes it clear to Jeremiah, hey, listen, it's not that they're rejecting you. It's not that they're not listening to you. It's that they're not listening to me. And Jesus tells us that when we as his disciples are about that work of making disciples, that is meaningful work. It's work that matters in eternity. And it's about helping people who are not rightly related to their creator. We read about it in Genesis chapter 3. It's about helping people who aren't rightly related to the creator of all things become rightly related to him. Friends, we're not negotiating a business deal. We're not self-help gurus. We're not trying to get people to buy what it is that we're selling. No, we are announcing good news. We are announcing God's declaration of reconciliation and forgiveness. And if they don't hear it, it's not that they're rejecting you. No, they're rejecting the one who sent you. Thirdly, we see the joy of being made right with God. The joy of being made right with God. Jesus sends his 72 out. They come back and they have amazing stories to tell. And so as they're sitting around the campfire and someone gets a guitar out, they're singing Kumbaya. They start sharing their testimonies and the testimonies are fantastic. They say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now let's remember that prior to this point in Luke's gospel, the disciples had had a really hard time with it. In fact, after the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Jesus comes down off the mountain with James and Peter and John, and there's a father who's begging Jesus, saying, hey, I brought my son to your disciples to cast the demon out of him, and they couldn't do it. And now here they are saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, yeah, you think that's cool. Let me tell you more about what's happening. In verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, uh, that kind of begs a question. The question being, how should we understand those kinds of statements? Is Jesus telling us that we should be handling snakes, snakes and treading over poisonous arachnids? In case you didn't know, a scorpion is not a reptile. It's an arachnid. I looked it up this week. Uh, it's a cousin to spiders. And since they're all gross and disgusting, now you know. What, what's, what's going on? Is, is, is this Jesus telling us to be snake-handling Presbyterians or to walk over tanks full of scorpions? Now, let's remember that as we saw this morning in Jeremiah 29, context is always king. Verse 18 becomes key. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he has given them authority over all the power of the enemy. Friends, the serpent that he's talking about is Satan himself. And the power of the enemy has been defeated. In other words, Jesus is telling them that the great promise that Les read for us this morning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what the scholars call the Proto-Evangelion, the first glimpse, the first hint of the gospel. Well, that is coming true. Now, there is a branch of the church that highlights and emphasizes and really prioritizes these kinds of power encounters. There are folks who claim that these kinds of signs and wonders are what is absolutely crucial and necessary to know that someone is really authentically Christian. But look again at verse 20. For Jesus reminds us, that's not the main thing. Listen, it's great that you're having these kinds of power encounters. It's great that these signs and wonders... But what's the main thing? The main thing is this. Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Hey, you know this kingdom of God that you're announcing? You know this reconciliation with God that you're proclaiming? You know the thing that these signs and wonders are pointing to? That's what you need to be rejoicing in. Rejoice in the fact that you've been made right with God. Don't rejoice in the way that you can lay hands on somewhere. Don't rejoice in the gifts that you have. Don't rejoice in the kind of power encounters and the signs and wonders that you can do. Rejoice that you were once lost and you're now found. Rejoice that you were once dead and you've now been made alive. Rejoice that you were once an enemy of God, but now you've been called a son or a daughter of God. That's where your joy should be found. Not that the spirits are subject to you, 
but that your names are written in heaven. See, the joy is in the fact that we have been made right with God. That wonderful promise that God make, made in Genesis 3, not just that the head of the serpent would be trod upon, but that wonderful promise in Genesis 3 has come true. Where our first father and our first mother were cast away from God's presence, we are now gathered into his presence. Fourthly and finally, there is the joy of living in this Kairos moment. The joy of living in this Kairos moment. Uh, Jesus himself rejoices and then he prays. And the prayer, uh, as we read it, is a bit of a backhanded compliment. Do you notice what he's calling his disciples? <laughs> Little children. In fact, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, we think of little kids as being cute and adorable, and aren't they wonderful? That was not the case in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture. They would have valued uh, folks like Dwayne, right? older folks, gray hair, much more than they would have valued babies. And Jesus says, listen, God, you're not revealing this to the wise and the understanding. No, you're revealing it to little children, to people who have no idea how it is that they know what they know. And Jesus goes on to say that he alone has the authority to make a statement like this, because in verse 22, we're told that he has a unique relationship with the Father. Jesus alone can let us know how the kingdom works, because Jesus alone is the one who has the Father has handed all things over to him. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There's a unique relationship between the Father and the Son that we're then let in on. And Jesus uniquely plays a role. He has a relationship with the Father that no one else has, and therefore he has a kind of authority that no one else has. There was a wonderful book written several years ago entitled uh, Team of Rivals. And it was a study. It was a, it was a kind of a historical biography written about Abraham Lincoln and his wartime cabinet during the American Civil War. Lincoln understood that he couldn't just have uh, a cabinet of yes men, that the war was going to be lengthy and costly. And when everyone was saying it was going to be over really quickly, Lincoln knew better. And he knew that he needed to sort of build some accord across the aisles. And so he ended up appointing people who uh, he didn't agree with, and quite honestly, who he didn't even really like, to important posts within his cabinet because he knew he had to build that kind of consensus and he had to build that kind of coalition. And so the book that was written was called Team of Rivals. And it talks about how all these different folks in his cabinet, uh, they hated one another. And as, and as Lincoln pointed out later, the only time they were ever really unified was when they were all unified against him. And that's when he knew he was probably on the right path. And so there was one particular meeting and uh, they're there in the cabinet room and Lincoln decides to take a vote. So they vote. And as he recorded it later, there are seven nays and one I. The eyes have it. 
Lincoln was the president, he had a kind of authority that a cabinet secretary doesn't have. In the same way, friends, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus has a kind of authority that others don't have. And so we live in a very unique moment. We live in the Greek word kairos is a word for time, but it's not time like chronos. It's Time like this is it. This is the specific moment. Jesus points out that if you're a disciple of his, you're living in this very unique moment in the story of salvation. I've heard the distinction made this way. Kronos is time, as in uh, when a woman becomes pregnant, she knows there is nine months of time that has to pass before she has a baby. And then there is that Kairos moment in which she turns to her husband and says, it's time. That's the Kairos moment. Nine months of Kronos have brought us to this Kairos moment. And Jesus is telling his disciples they are living in a Kairos moment. Look at verse 23. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and didn't see it and to hear what you hear, and they didn't hear it. See, this moment in the story of salvation is so unique that Old Testament heroes like Moses and David and Elijah and Daniel, they wanted to see what you have in your lap this very morning. They wanted to see and understand the fullness of God's plan, and they wanted it to be revealed to them. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, Father, I bless you because you, you as my disciples, you're blessed. You get to see the things that the prophets and kings wanted to see but didn't see it. And they wanted to hear them and they didn't get to hear it. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered how astounding it is that when we read our Bible, we don't have to wonder who the Messiah is going to be? We don't have to puzzle as Abraham and Sarah did. You know, the Lord said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through us. I wonder how he's going to pull that off. Or how it is that the Messiah was going to fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer like Boaz did for Ruth. See, we don't have to imagine how God is going to keep all of the covenant promises he's made to his people throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. We know. When God makes the promise to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36 that he will take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and put his spirit within them. We don't have to wonder what that's going to be like. Because we know. Friends, it is such a joy and such a privilege to live on this side of the New Testament. To live on this side of the cross and the resurrection. There ought to be great joy. We know how the story ends.
Well, God shows us just how privileged we are by giving us a visual representation of his gospel. We get to taste and see the goodness of the Lord this morning. We have heard the good news and now we get to see it. Now we get to taste it. Now we get to spiritually commune with the Lord Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in the elements of the table. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you call us. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a life of being called like sheep amidst the wolves. But it's also a life of joy and privilege. Father, I pray this morning that as your people we would know that joy. I pray this morning that as your people we would know that tremendous sense of privilege that is ours. We have been made right with our Creator. And Father, we, we, we don't have to wonder how the story is going to go. We know how you have revealed yourself to us fully through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.